This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Andrea Dukakis, in for Ryan Warner. John Hickenlooper's not taking any time off now that he's finished up his two terms as Colorado governor. Instead, he's traveling across the country, laying the groundwork for a likely 2020 presidential run. That includes heading to the nation's capital, where he spoke at the U.S. Conference of Mayors. CPR News producer Anthony Cotton has been with Hickenlooper in Washington, D.C. Anthony, thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Andrea. Why is Washington, D.C. an important place for Hickenlooper to be right now? Well, there are mayors from all across the country here, and so it's a chance for potential candidates to kind of test the waters in terms of their messaging. Uh, For example, besides Hickenlooper, who spoke for about 10 minutes on Thursday, former Vice President Joe Biden gave a talk, and current Senator Cory Booker from New Jersey was also scheduled to speak. Both of them are considering a run for the Democratic nomination, as well as Hickenlooper. What was Hickenlooper's message to the group? Well, it actually kind of got off to a bit of a shaky start because the former Denver mayor, Hickenlooper, called current Denver mayor, Michael Hancock, first among equals in the room. And the comment was kind of met with a with an icy silence. But although the group is considered bipartisan, there's a clear Democratic vibe. And so to that end, Hickenlooper recovered by going after the current occupant of the White House. In my lifetime, things have never been worse in this country. Uh, I'm not going to go down the list. You know what it is when immigrants at the border have their children ripped from their arms and actually adopted away from them. I could go down the list. Uh, In my office, we don't say the word Donald Trump because you will end up wasting too much time. And then a little bit later, he tried to work the room by sprinkling a little mayoral humor about getting things done in Denver. Denver's a great mayor form of government. Uh, city council, there, there are 13 city council members to change one line item of your budget. They need nine out of 13 votes. It's a great system. Did Hickenlooper say anything that convinced the people there that he should be the Democratic presidential candidate in 2020? Well, I think that's the question he's still grappling with and trying to formulate an answer for. What kind of path that could he take that would gain him the nomination? With the mayors, he pointed to what he considered some of his successes as governor of Colorado, like reducing teen pregnancies and fast tracks. Many of those accomplishments came down to being willing to listen, he said, adding that maybe the answer in 2020 is turning to someone who's a little bit unheralded. You know, I've never persuaded anybody of anything by telling them why I was right and they were wrong. The only way you persuade anyone of anything is to listen to them harder. I think the situation we're facing now is the worst in my lifetime, but it's also filled with opportunity, especially for mayors. Tom Paine, after the defeat, after the Battle of Trenton, he was riding on a drumhead. He said, without great struggle, there could be no glorious triumph. And this is an opportunity for, for heroes to step up and for, for extraordinary actions and extraordinary deeds from sometimes ordinary people. After his speech, Hickenlooper went into a little more detail about his decision. How do I you know, make sure that if I'm going to do something like this and run a national campaign, that there's, you know, the, the, the ideas and, and experiences we've had in Colorado are going to get traction. And I think they will. I mean, I, you know, during the midterms, you know, I went to Georgia and Florida and Iowa and New Mexico and New Hampshire. 
and we definitely felt that, that there was traction. There is, a, I think, a new silent majority of people who want to get stuff done, but it is, it's not the typical pathway by which uh, someone wins a national election. So how do you determine where you are on the path? Well, you, you just keep talking to people and, and, and try to get in front of as many different perspectives as possible and really listen to people, get honest feedback that you can, uh, that you can put in the bank, as it were. But I'm a, I'm a competitive person. If I'm going to do this, I want to win. And while I believe it's important to have our ideas and successes in Colorado shared, and I think it's good for Colorado to be held up as a model for the country, if I'm going to you know, take a big chunk of, of my life and, and run a national campaign, I want to feel I've got a good chance of, of winning. And that's part of the calculus we're doing right now as well. You mentioned Denver Mayor Michael Hancock. Is he going to support Hickenlooper? Yes, I, I believe ultimately he will, although he admitted that there's a little uncertainty about what lies ahead. I think it's still evolving, to be honest with you. I think he uh, one is to figure out what the field looks like. Not only is our former governor Hickenlooper here, but I just talked to Mayor Garcetti out of L.A. and Mayor Buttigieg out of South Bend, Indiana. He's here. I'm sure Senator Kamala Harris has been in the conference. I haven't seen her, but I'm sure she's coming through here. Um, so the reality is he has to allow that field to be set. You know, we just had a address by Vice President Biden. Uh, very much sounded like a presidential candidate to me. So we'll see how that continues to, to lay out. But, uh, you know, I like Governor Hickenlooper. He's smart. You know, he has a tremendous contrast to what we had because he's the least partisan person you're going to run into. I think the American people are, quite frankly, going to be um, going to be sick of hearing anyone who comes out and talks about partisan politics. It's time to get something done for the American people. And he will bring that kind of message without question. So what's next for Hickenlooper? Well, later this week, he's going back to Iowa. As he said earlier, Hickenlooper visited there before the November midterms. He's scheduled to, not surprisingly, given his roots, visit a brewery. But he's also going to be the guest of honor at a house party with about 80 or so guests that's going to be hosted by a family who says they just want to hear what he's got to say. And maybe more than the mayors, that may give a better picture of where things stand for him. Obviously, his campaign would have to get off to a good start in places like Iowa and New Hampshire and South Carolina. And his campaign says the best way to do that is just by going to Iowa and sitting in one living room at a time. But he says he has not decided yet. Supposedly, the decision will come in late February or early March. Anthony, great to talk to you. Thanks, Andrea. CPR News producer Anthony Cotton joined us from Washington, D.C. That's where former Colorado Governor John Hickenlooper spoke at the U.S. Conference of Mayors. Anthony will head to Iowa, where Hickenlooper's going next, for what appears to be a possible presidential run. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Andrea Dukakis. And I'm Ryan Warner. Thinking about your garden? Well, you should be. Yes, it's winter, but there's plenty to do to care for your plots and plan for summer. Each season, CSU Extension Master Gardener Lonnie Godet of Berthet answers your questions. And she's here even in winter. Hi, Lonnie. Hi. Thanks for having me. Yes, welcome in from the cold. Uh, I'm wondering if you still have anything from last year's garden in your pantry. I do. I have some pickle relish 
I actually gave the cucumbers that I grew to a friend of mine who made relish and gave it back. Yum. That was fabulous. Less work. I've got some tomatoes that I dry in the oven, and I eat them like snacks. What? Oh, like cherry tomatoes? Yeah. Yeah, cherry tomatoes. I just dry them in a real low oven. They come out crispy and sweet, and I store them in the fridge in baggies. Anything in the freezer? Yes. I've got bags of plums from the plum tree and bags of tomatoes. So I just pull them out when I need them and throw them into sauces or soups. Plums? Well, the plums are more to make jam, which yeah. I haven't gotten around to doing okay. yet. Okay. Well, get on it. I uh, want some plum jam. Okay. Okay. As always, we asked what is on our listeners' minds garden-wise. Let's hear from Paul Scold of Arvada. My question regarding a minimum or an optimum size garden for some types of plants The one I'm thinking of is corn. I know it tassels and it cross-pollinates. Is there a minimum size that you need to have a successful plot of sweet corn? Corn being wind-pollinated is best grown in blocks. Even like a 4x4 block is pretty optimum for a small corn plot. A block versus what? A row. A row, okay. Right, because if it's in a row, the wind could come crosswise and the pollen would be blown away from the other ears of corn and not pollinate it very well. So you you just have reduced pollination and poor corn. Interesting. So it's not just a question of size, but of how that is sort of uh, designed. Especially for corn, yes. Okay. And of course, then you can get up to thousands of acres of cornfields and that works fine. But for our small gardens, four by four is about the smallest you'd want to go. And this is true of all kinds of corn, sweet corn. Correct. To like. Okay. Uh, do you grow corn? Have you grown corn? I have, and I've also failed at growing okay. corn. <laughs> I have accidentally, when I was first starting to grow corn, I detasseled my corn based on a friend who had grown up on a corn farm telling me, that they used to detassel the corn every year. So I thought you were supposed to. Okay. But unfortunately, if you do that, your corn doesn't grow because you've taken all the pollen away. Don't detassel your corn, folks. Don't detassel your corn. Okay. Jonathan Toth of Centennial reached out to us on Instagram. When is the best time of year to apply compost to your garden? Well, I like to apply it in the fall mostly because I tend to use some animal manures in my compost heap. I've had chickens and I get horse manures, etc. And I like it to have that extra time to sit out in the garden and age more. Um, So that's happening right now in your garden. Actually, I did not put any compost out this year Mm. because my soil test told me I didn't need to. Ah. This was an informed choice. This was an informed choice. And it's really important that we realize that we can over-amend our soils. So without having a soil test, people keep putting compost year after year after year, and all of a sudden they have a soil that's really high in organic matter, really low in nitrogen, and all of a sudden their vegetables aren't growing right. So a soil test is the best way to know if you should amend or not. And mine said don't. This is fascinating, the idea being that you don't always have to apply compost. Check that assumption before you do. Exactly. Now, if you didn't get to it in the fall, is it okay to do it now? Sure, absolutely. This is a great time to do those kind of, I call them wheelbarrow tasks. The plants aren't actively growing, so we can do all kinds of other things in the garden. What else? Well, we can be taking down our garden structures that maybe we didn't get to in the fall. So if you had vines, um, 
cucumber vines or squash vines growing up on structures, you might want to take them down and because you're going to rotate your beds. Or moving dirt. It's a great time to move dirt and mulch if you didn't get your mulch done in the fall. So the winter time can be a busy time. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. And each season, we speak with Master Gardener Lonnie Godet. And uh, yes, it's winter, but we're talking about what you can do this time of year to prep for when it's warmer. Sarah Martin of Centennial looked back at last year's garden and sent us this question via Twitter. I grow tomatoes every single season in the garden, and the cherry tomatoes always do well, except for last summer. I don't understand what's going on. They're in above-ground beds that I turn over and amend with fresh compost every spring. They're on a south-facing wall. They're on a drip system, so they get watered regularly. The only thing I can think is that I've had tomatoes in those beds for about six seasons, And I'm wondering if it's time to take a break. Cherry tomatoes. I want her to succeed with those because she may dry them. She might. And (laughs) then they'd be delicious. Exactly. (laughs) Uh, But what might be behind the failure? There are several things that could be there. First of all, she mentioned that she amends every year. There we go. Yeah, there you go. She could have over-amended soil. And if her compost wasn't quite yet ready, we like our compost to be well broken down. And it takes three to nine months if you're making your own compost for it to break down properly to be usable. If she's using an what we call an unfinished compost, it could be actually inhibiting plant growth because it will be taking up oxygen at the root zone or it's um, she's got her soil too high in organic matter. Or there could be a large nitrogen demand if the compost isn't finished yet. So those are a couple things that I can think of. She might send her soil in for a soil test, which you can do through CSU Extension. That's something you've mentioned to us in previous conversations. What else might be plaguing her cherry tomatoes? She could be right. She could have had them in the same soil for too long. If she's seeing evidence of diseases, there are some funny uh, spotted yellowing leaf curling, plant curling, viruses and bacteria that can be carried on in the soil. And if that's the case, then it's definitely time to move out of those beds. Okay. And is that something that would show up in a soil test, by the way? No. No. You just have to look for the evidence You have to look for the evidence of it. And whether it's a bacteria or a soil, you could send in a plant sample to CSU, but basically you're not going to get rid of it from your soil. So just move your tomatoes. Okay. Those are the most likely culprits in her cherry tomato issue. It sounds like it. Yes. It's always hard to, to tell. To diagnose from, from afar. Yes. <laughs> well, maybe we'll plan a house call sometime, Sarah, if you'll have us over. Uh, okay. A listener from Aurora reached out on Instagram. My name is Carolyn, and I was wondering if it was too late to plant garlic this winter so it could be harvested in the summer. Well, that's an interesting question. Garlic, we typically want to plant in late October, early November. If we have warm weather like we've had and workable soil, then if you've already bought the garlic, there's no reason not to put it in the ground. You will probably have smaller heads of garlic when you go to harvest it. And when would that be harvest time for garlic? Usually when it starts getting pretty hot in the summer. If I recall, that would be mid to late July. 
and the lower leaves will start to brown off of the plant. And then you know to pull the water, let the leaves and the plant dry out a bit right before you harvest it. If you don't get it in early enough in the fall, then the the garlic heads actually grow all through the winter. Even though it's slight, they put on some size, and that way when you're ready to harvest, they're larger. But if you get started later, they may be smaller. Okay. Lots of different kinds of garlic, I imagine. Tons. Yeah. Tons. You could be an expert on garlic. Alone. Alone. You could spend your entire gardening career on garlic. Can you taste the difference? Some people can. <laughs> that was yeah. a very delicate way of answering that question. Okay, a question that comes from inside the building. The call is coming from inside the house. Uh, CPR News' Anne Marie Awad wants to know what to look for in crop cover blends and tips for places to buy them. Crop cover blends or uh, alternatively cover crop blends. Correct. What is she talking about? She sounds like such a green thumb to know that phrase. <laughs> so cover crops are what we would plant when we're letting a, a field or a bed go fallow, when we're not growing it actively in vegetables or flowers. And in fact, some flowers can be cover crops. So if it's in the wintertime, we're looking usually to prevent wind erosion and soil desiccation. And sometimes we're looking to improve the soil by getting some more nitrogen in the soil. So depending on what your purpose is, if you're just looking to prevent erosion, wheat grasses, rye grasses make great cover crops. If you're looking to add nitrogen, then you might want to use a legume crop like a pea or a vetch. Some people want to break their soil up and make it easier to work. And in that case, some of the larger turnips or radishes are used as cover crops. And how long might someone be letting things go fallow? Just a season? Um, A season, two seasons, three seasons. Sometimes you'll grow a cover crop for weed prevention because you know you're not going to mess with that bed for quite a while. I've done that. Fascinating. Yeah. And you can find blends. You're not going to find them typically at the garden centers in the box stores. You're typically going to have to go to your local garden center. We've also got a seed supplier out of Greeley who works with a lot of native seeds and seeds that are well adapted for our area. And they have a blend of cover crops. Or you could go to your vegetable catalogs, which are all in the mail right now which is very exciting. Obviously looking for things that aren't too thirsty in our arid climate. Correct. Maybe our tomato questioner needs to plant a cover crop. Possible? Possible, but it would take a soil test to determine that. To determine. Okay, back to the soil test. Austin Ouellette of Denver asked on Twitter, if I wanted to grow a pepper that originates from Central America called a chihuahua negro, Is it possible to do so sustainably in Colorado? And I looked this up. This is apparently a chili used in mole negro. That's delicious. I know mole is so delicious. It's also so expensive usually on menus. Yeah, You could make your own. Good reason to grow a pepper like that. Have you heard of the chihuahua negro? Not specifically. Okay. But most of the peppers have very similar requirements, and they grow pretty well here in Colorado. As far as sustainability growth, goes, then you would want to look at your, your management practices. You're not overwatering, you're not underwatering, and you could even use a light layer of mulch to help keep the soil evenly moist while the peppers are growing. But there's a lot of vegetables we grow here that aren't endemic to our area, mm. and they're not more or less sustainable. It's just a matter of how we grow them. Okay, so certainly not impossible. Absolutely not. A question about xeric plants 
ones that naturally thrive in our arid climate because they don't need a ton of water. When should we prune plants like pestamens, yarrow, and Russian sage? People have different reasons for pruning, and I prefer to prune in the spring. I like to leave the plants up over the winter because, well, the main reason is they give us some interest. When the snow falls, lands on the plants, it's very lovely. Hmm. It also provides both the um, the forage in, in terms of seeds and some shelter for birds, mice, bunnies, a lot of the critters that we like to see in our gardens, plus the insects. There, we have a lot of burrowing bees, native burrowing bees. I had no idea bees burrowed. They do, especially the bumblebees, the big bumblebees. They live underground. And so you like to leave some of that cover for them. I do. I do. Plus, it looks nice in the winter. I get really tired of looking at nothing but brown, and you've got at least some grass stalks that are sticking up or an old yarrow flower head that will hold some snow on it. You have an important wintertime reminder. It has to do with watering. Is it important to water in the wintertime? Critical. Critical. It's critical. We have these long, dry periods like we're going through right now. We've had very little snow. We have no snow cover, so there's a lot of evaporation from the ground. At least in the metro Denver, right? On the front range, yeah, yeah for sure. Um, we had some snow earlier on in October, but we've had a lot of dry weather since then. And we've had some wind, and the wind is very desiccating. So the roots underneath the plant, even in the wintertime, the plant may be dormant on top, but the roots are still working down there. They're growing. It may be slow. We're not in the mountains. If we're up high in the mountains, maybe they've slowed down all the way. But keeping the plant hydrated is really important for them to come through our winter droughts and come into spring with some spring in their step. Well done. We'll post some winter watering guidelines at CPR.org. Lonnie, nice to see you again. Thanks so much. It's been enjoyable. CSU Extension Master Gardener Lonnie Godet joins us each season, yes, even in winter, to answer your gardening questions. Coming up, the richest man most people have probably never heard of. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. The small tourist town of Manitou Springs holds two of the state's most valuable recreational marijuana licenses. That's because nearby Colorado Springs doesn't allow recreational sales. Manitou's now considering adding more pot shops. CPR's Southern Colorado reporter Dan Boyce explores what it could mean for both cities. Construction crews are tearing up both sides of the main drag leading into Manitou Springs. You know, as you look down Colorado Avenue, you see telephone pole after telephone pole. That's Ken Jaray. And I'm the mayor of Manitou Springs. So what the crews are doing is burying those lines to get rid of the poles, make it look nicer. And this project to do that, marijuana taxes are definitely helping. Is there anything do you think wouldn't have started or wouldn't have been possible without that money? All of it. <laughs> the city's Urban Renewal Authority, the fund Manitou uses for these kinds of things, before recreational marijuana, that fund was bringing in 30 some thousand dollars a year. Now, that number is more than a million. 
dollars a year. That is huge for a population under 6,000 people. And it's certainly not only Manitou residents buying the pot to generate that money. The fact that we have what, half a million people within four or five miles-ish um, and no other competition... Colorado Springs enacted a ban on recreational marijuana sales the year before those types of stores could even open in 2014. Manitou Mayor Jaray says that's worked out pretty well for his city. The city budget gets all this tax money, the two legal pot shops rake in millions. Kind of a win-win. Well, the loser might be the consumer. As I understand it, it's quite expensive. Yeah, we're talking two to four times the market rate. The Southern Colorado Cannabis Council has been talking with the Manitou City Council to pitch adding more stores. Executive Director Jason Worf says it could bring down those high prices. Just to even add one more licensee, I think we, we start to break that up. To be clear, you can buy marijuana in Colorado Springs. There are about 130 dispensaries in the city. You just need a medical marijuana card to buy from them. Okay, we have gallon-sized jars here full of medical cannabis. J.P. Spears runs Tricome Health Consultants in Colorado Springs. Spears has Crohn's disease, which causes inflammation of the intestines. He relies on marijuana himself for pain. Absolutely. And he wants his store to take that mantle of being a medical facility seriously. His staff wear scrubs and use medical terminology. Still, he says he really wants to bring in recreational customers, too, because he wants to stay open. Okay, the state of the business. Uh, He's having trouble making payroll, paying his taxes. We're desperate each day that comes by to get another dollar in our door. He doesn't try to conceal his frustration, even his anger with those two recreational shops in Manitou Springs. He estimates all the medical shops in Colorado Springs combined probably bring in about half of what just those two Manitou stores do every month. That leaves the Colorado Springs stores bickering. They say bad things about each other. To fight for the... For the few cardholders that still carry their cards. Spears says most of these shops open their doors to try to get ahead of the game, to prepare for what they hoped would be the inevitable, eventual, full legalization in Colorado Springs. But these days... They're exhausted. They're burnt out. They have nothing left. He says there are two dozen on the market to sell right now. Colorado Springs Mayor John Southers says, yeah. I expect that will continue. You'll see some consolidation. You'll see the Walmart effect. So all these Colorado Springs businesses are suffering, and the town is losing out on millions in tax revenue. Why not get in on the game? The city said no when recreational marijuana was legalized more than five years ago. The industry has matured a lot since then. Well, my thought is it is still not culturally a fit, and more importantly, that appears to be the view of the citizens of Colorado Springs. Souther says recent polling by both pro- and anti-marijuana groups still finds similar disapproval rates for recreational marijuana in his city. He points to the city's health-conscious reputation as the home of the U.S. Olympic Committee. And the fact of the matter is the military is very concerned about marijuana accessibility. Colorado Springs has five military bases. And Colorado Springs residents looking to buy recreational pot will continue driving to neighboring Manitou Springs and paying a lot more. They may have more choices in the future, though. The Manitou Springs City Council is asking for public input starting this month on whether to add more recreational marijuana licenses. In El Paso County, Dan Boyce, CPR News. 
Now the story of a man who struck it rich in the gold and silver rush of the West back in the 1800s. He's a man not many people have heard of today. His name was John Mackey. Author Gregory Crouch calls him the Bonanza King. Greg, welcome to the show. Hello, Andrea. Thanks for having me. How would you describe John Mackey's wealth and notoriety in today's terms? He would be the equivalent probably of Mark Zuckerberg. He was the fifth richest American when he died in 1902, and that's the same place that Zuckerberg seems to have today. Now, he didn't have an easy childhood. He came to New York from Ireland with his family when he was nine years old. What was it like for him? They settled in the Five Points neighborhood of New York City. That's the Gangs of New York neighborhood, for Mm -hmm. those of you that's seen that movie. It was absolutely miserable, the most notorious slum in the world. Um, Horrible living conditions, people jammed into tenements, filthy, dirty, disease-ridden. Working conditions were awful. It was was, uh, as bad a slum as there's ever existed in the world. And he was able to go to school for a while, but then his dad died, and he had to work to support his mom and sister. That's right. His dad died when he was 11. So he left school at age 11 and uh, sold newspapers, a New York newsboy, and you know carried packages, swept street crossings, uh, whatever he could to support his mother and sister. But he, he was the man of the family starting at age 11. In the mid-1800s, Mackey decides to go west to seek his fortune. He certainly didn't make money overnight. Talk about those early years when he arrived in the west. Mackey came to California in 1851, and he mined for eight years without distinction in the Sierra foothills. And then when the Comstock Lode was discovered on the other side of the mountains in 1859, Uh, about 20 miles east of Lake Tahoe and about 20 miles south of Reno, although Reno did not exist at the time. He walked over the mountains because he was too poor to afford a mule and, you know, took a job at $4 a day in somebody else's mine. Talk about how Mackey hit it big. Well, Mackey, he literally had no money at all when he arrived on the Comstock load, and he started working his way up working two shifts, essentially, one for the $4 a day he needed to live and the other in exchange for feet. And that was how mines were owned, was by the foot. So he was doing sweat equity with a second shift of hard labor, uh, and they paid him in feet, which is a share of ownership in the mine. And those shares, those feet were tradable, just like shares in a modern stock market, and their value would rise and fall. And since Mackey spent his whole life underground... By and large, he speculated pretty wisely. And over the course of the first couple of years on the load, he worked his way up into mine ownership. And he consolidated all of his various interests into one mine in 1865. And that, that paid off pretty big. And that set him on the road to stupendous wealth. Yeah, it's perhaps the ultimate American rags to riches story. And Mackey also happened to be a really good guy with an incredibly strong work ethic. Is there an anecdote that describes the kind of man he was? Yeah, the one that really stands out to me, now we're talking 1875. So Mackey has risen from nothing. That first mining success has led to other mining successes. And he now owns the two richest mines in the world. They're right in the heart of Virginia City, Nevada. They're about a thousand feet down from the streets. They're called the Con Virginia and the California Mines. Mm. And they were paying out each one about a million dollars a month in dividends. Wow. So he's just getting fire hosed with money. 
Now, uh, late in that year, there was a terrible fire that destroyed most of the town, including the uh, the mines, the, the, the surface works of the mines. Mackie had led the fight to stop the fire going down the mine shafts, which would have ruined them forever. But the mining, the, the big houses and the machinery on the surface is totally destroyed. And during the rebuilding effort, uh, Mackie's leading the work crews there. And some rich banker comes up from San Francisco and goes to the site where the mine works have all been destroyed and asks a miner there if he could, uh, where is Mr. Mackie? And the miner and a couple of his friends point over to a guy and it's just another miner like them by all appearances wearing you know, canvas trousers and a and a felt shirt, and and the the banker says, "No, no, I mean Mr. Mackey of the Con Virginia Mine." And the miners look at him and say, "Well, sir, that's him." It was almost like he, perhaps his upbringing um, made him even more sympathetic to his workers' plight. Absolutely, every person in America, and especially the miners, knew that he'd come up from the ranks of common laborers, and and Mackey's very existence was like proof positive that there was no uncrossable chasm that divided a four dollar a day miner from a guy worth. $20 million. John Mackey donated to many charities during his lifetime. You say he was one of the most widely admired men of the 19th century. He's not well known today, especially when you compare him to other wealthy people of the time, names like John D. Rockefeller, John Jacob Astor. Why did Mackey's name disappear? Well, that's very ironic in the sense that Mackey was basically a good guy, and, and it's almost impossible to find bad press around Mackey in the 1880s and 1890s. Uh, he was this tremendous rags-to-riches story, and he never chiseled on his employees' wages. He never drove down working conditions trying to eke out the last dollar from his holdings. So late in life, he did not have this vast PR problem. And people like Leland Stanford and John D. Rockefeller and Jay Gould, uh, Andrew Carnegie, the people who, from that time who we remember today, they very much had a PR problem. They were widely reviled people and with good reason, too. They had behaved abhorrently. Uh, so late in life, they know they've got this big PR problem, so they found these eponymous philanthropic organizations, Stanford University, Carnegie Mellon, the Rockefeller Foundation, and those things would spend the next hundred years rehabilitating the family name uh, quite successfully, I might add. Um, whereas Mackey never felt that pressure. He, he was incredibly charitable, he and his wife. They gave away almost all their sums anonymously. That He despised personal attention. I, I found it interesting that when um, Mackey died, his obit was on the front page of the San Francisco Chronicle. The paper's headline was only slightly smaller, you say, than the bombing of Pearl Harbor. Mackey was a huge figure in the 19th century West, um, and that made a big impression on me when I saw it, too, that that big headline, John Mackey dead, right across the top, uh, you know, it was a, a news on a par with, you know, like the Pearl Harbor attack. Uh, just He was a, a towering figure in the 19th century. How? And not just in the West, mind you, also in New York, he ended up breaking Jay Gould's transatlantic telegraph monopoly. He did not he like monopolies. 
No, he he had broken the monopoly that the uh, Bank of California had on the Comstock load on his way up, and then late in life, his capstone accomplishment was breaking breaking Jay Gould's transatlantic telegraph monopoly. How would you compare Mackey to some of today's economic titans? Yeah, I think he had the the telegraph was the was the world's first you know digital communications technology. He was a major player in the ground floor of digital communications. Uh, so he would be, you know, equivalent to guys that are pushing industry or pushing into new industries today. People like, you know, Zuckerberg and Bezos and Musk, uh, these people whose happenings we follow all the time. And just to wrap up, how did the Comstock load compare to a place like Leadville? The Comstock load was the first of the big hard rock mining centers in the West. And the expertise that American miners gained fanned out from the Comstock load all over the West. I was really astonished to discover how interconnected everything and everyone was. So many people that had learned their mining expertise on the Comstock took it to Leadville in the 1880s. Greg, thanks for joining us. Thank you. My pleasure. Author Gregory Crouch, his book is The Bonanza King, about mining titan John Mackey. We spoke in September. Up next, today marks a milestone for a Colorado band. They're taking it to the next level. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. In the newest episode of The Playlist League, a new podcast from CPR's Open Air, host Jeremy Peterson, Alicia Sweeney, Bruce Trujillo, and me, Jesse Witten, compete to build the ultimate New Year's playlist. We're finally able to restart. We're finally able to... But of course, time is a construct. Let's not. <laughs> Do we want to get into that? Yeah, we're going to build a playlist. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. And remember to vote for your favorite playlist at CPR.org. It's the Playlist League. From CPR's Open Air. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Andrea Dukakis. And I'm Ryan Warner. The singer known as Slim Cessna is a cornerstone of the local music scene. With acts like Slim Cessna's Auto Club and the Denver Gentleman, he pioneered the so-called Denver Sound, a mix of country, rock, and folk with gothic overtones, all inspired by the American West. Slim's latest project is a quartet with longtime songwriting partner Munley Munley. It's called DBUK. The band's new album is out today. DBUK performs at Denver's Lost Lake on January 30th before heading out on a European tour. Slim and multi-instrumentalist Dwight Pentecost are with us now. Gentlemen, welcome to the program. Oh, thanks for having us. Hello. Uh, so DBUK was originally known as Denver Broncos UK. I imagine that may have caused some confusion amongst Colorado football fans, maybe even some trouble with the NFL. What was the reason for just going with DBUK? I, I don't think we had the energy to to deal with what could have become consequences. Uh-huh. <laughs> you weren't in for a legal fight. No, and I don't even know if they could do anything, because, but whatever. Like We'd get a kick out of it, 
and we'll just leave it at that. It's it's fun to just have it DBUK. Yeah. In print, that's the only thing. I still call it the Broncos in my head or when I'm talking about it. Where did the original idea of Denver Broncos UK come from? Well, Denver Broncos is a great band name. Um, <laughs> and we added the UK to pretend that we weren't going to have any legal problems. Okay. And kind of a throwback to great bands from the 80s that before the internet when in the U.S. they would have a band in the U.K. they would have a band with the same name. DBUK sounds a bit different from your other bands, a more, I guess, stripped down acoustic sound, I'd say. What was the motivation to start this project? At the time, like, because this was already a long time ago, I think we started in 2006 or seven. Yeah. I, I think we just wanted to prepare ourselves for growing older. The touring schedule and, and, the, and the live show, it's very physical uh, with Slim Sesta's Auto Club. Yeah, I mean, there's a um, lot of running and kneeling. And we're and... all getting older, and it hurts <laughs> um, our bodies. So we kind of had this idea that we could make something else where we would sit down and play something quiet and beautiful. Dwight, you play in both bands as well as a third group, which is Munley and the Lubricalians. Were you relying on, like, Aleve or Tylenol to get through the auto club shows? <laughs> uh -huh. No, I can't say that I had been, but it can be painful. <laughs> <laughs> I rely on, on Advil. <laughs> on Advil. <laughs> How would you describe the sound on this album, Dwight? That's a good question. <laughs> That's what people say when they don't have an answer. Yeah. <laughs> we don't even know how to describe it, which is kind of nice. It also makes it harder to earn a living, you know, because we can't put it in any category in the record store. It doesn't belong in one bin or another. <laughs> We're not very good at, at describing ourselves, I guess. This is the lead single, In San Francisco Bay. Reflect a little bit on this song for me, Slim. I think it's a, an amazing song. It's actually the most recent song, or the, the last one that we recorded, because hmm. you know, the, the project took several years for us to complete. Interesting, in the, um, the backstage area with you guys, you have San Francisco Bay coffee. Oh, yes. And that's what I'm drinking right now. And in, our, I, in our green room. Yeah, we in the green room. We provided you. Yes. Yeah, something and like that. And thank you for that. And so I should have a lot more to say about the song because we're drinking the coffee. The San Francisco coffee. Do you guys spend any I think real time in San song. Francisco? We have, actually. The Auto Club, we were on the Alternative Tentacles label, which was based out of San Francisco. It's Jello Biafra's label. Oh, yes. Um, we were with them for... Gosh, 15 years, 
20 years? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Until about four years ago. But so we spent a, a good deal of time in San Francisco. From the estate of John Denver is another song on this record from DBUK. It tells a seemingly fictional story about the late singer-songwriter's legacy in Colorado. It's also a bit self-referential. Is this written with love for John Denver, or are you among the John Denver haters? Oh, I, I absolutely adore John Denver. A lifetime favorite. I, the production quality, too, is, is so amazing on John Denver records that mm. you just I would love to figure out how to do that. Are you speaking to sort of the lushness? It's, yes. It's so lush, isn't it? It's so beautiful. I would like to think that the song is written in love. We've laid out that you're involved in so many different projects, and I don't know if that's true for all musicians, but it seems especially true for Denver musicians. Like, there's so much cross-pollination with bands, so much cooperation. Do you think that's intrinsic to the Colorado music scene? I think when we got started in this, you know, for you know, for myself, like, 35 years ago or, or however long, that this was a much smaller community, um, music community. Well, so a much smaller city for that matter. But, mm-hmm. And there wasn't as much going on and there, you know, we didn't have a lot of bands coming to town and there we didn't have the Bluebird and the Ogden and all these venues to play in. And I, I think that we made our own community and those that of us that have been doing this for so long together, we're all in it then as well. Mm. So it's become very incestuous, I suppose. You know, not that this matters to your sound, but you two have just incredible taste in clothing. So I I just want to say to you, Dwight, you have this blazer on that is out of, I don't know, Mad Men maybe? Maybe it's a little later. Maybe it's like Three's Company, but it's fantastic. (laughs) And I understand that you are wearing, Slim, a dinosaur turd belt buckle. Yes. What? And I wish I could remember the name of the stone. It starts with a C. Okay. And um, I'm going to Google while you yes. answer this. But wait, this is like a, it's a brown fossilized? Stone. Yeah, fossilized dinosaur turd. Coprolite? Yes. Yeah, because copro means poo. Yeah. Copperlite. How much do you pay attention to what you're wearing on stage? Like, is that part of the the deal, or do you not care that much? Well, uh, we like to look nice because we're going to work. It's a nice way to put it. Oh, absolutely. Like, we pay 
close attention. I mean, we don't talk about it. We just have always done that. We we've never been a t-shirt and tennis shoe band. Thanks for introducing me to Coprolite and this music yeah. and this music. Yeah, and it goes with my aesthetic. You know, the color, um, the brown. Yeah, the palette. Coprolite is brown. Yeah, <laughs> gentlemen, thanks for being with us. It's been a lot of fun. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, it's... Uh, thanks for putting up with us. Yeah. performs January 30th at Denver's Lost Lake before touring Europe. The band's new album, Songs 9 through 16, is out today. Dr. says Your leagues beyond me It's cause each time I eat I hear her scream Thanks for joining us. I'm Andrea Dukakis. Happy Friday. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.